I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. I'm so excited to have my two guests with me today. We have Alistair Pepper, uh, Managing Director with KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice based out of London. Hello, nice to be with you. And we have Marcus Hayland, also a managing director based out of Southern California with KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Hello. Thanks for being here, Marcus and Alistair. So before joining us at KPMG, both of you worked at the OECD or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Would you share with us a bit about what you did while you were there? Absolutely, Brittany. So I was at the OECD for three years prior to joining KPMG in May 2022. I spent all my time there working on BEPS 2.0 on addressing the tax challenges of digitalization, focusing primarily on Pillar 1 and did a variety of work in the technical and political space on that pillar. I was focused on the Pillar 2 side of things. So that is the global minimum tax. I was working on that from the fall of 2019 through about April of 2021 and then came back to KPMG around that time and have been focusing on helping U.S. companies through the Pillar 2 journey. That's fantastic. And we're so glad to have you both. So before we start building up these pillars, so to speak, let's start to lay the foundation for them and where they came from. Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 have come out of BEPS 2.0, or Base Erosion Profit Shifting, which is an evolution of the BEPS project from the OECD G20 Inclusive Framework. Give us a little bit of background on what this is and maybe what prompted it and what got us here. Well, the BEPS 2.0 project has always been badged as addressing the tax challenges of digitalization. And that's not really where we've ended up, but that was at least where we started. So the original BEPS project had Action 1 focused on what was then called addressing the tax challenges of the digital economy. There was no agreement on what the tax challenges of the digital economy was or whether there was even a challenge. And so you had a conclusion to BEPS Action 1 in 2015 that was pretty unclear on whether there were any direct tax issues the project then kind of went quiet for a couple of years, but as European countries started to think about and introduce digital services taxes, a tax on the selected revenue streams of large digital companies. This put pressure on the US to respond to those taxes, either through trade sanctions, which they'd explored, or negotiating agreement with those countries. And that was the initial driver for the BEPS 2.0 project. Alongside that, you had US tax reform and the introduction of minimum tax rules in the US, and simultaneously an interest from a number of European countries in those minimum tax rules. And that created the basis for this Pillar 1, Pillar 2 package deal on BEPS 2.0. And the idea that in exchange for Pillar 1 and giving European and other countries taxing rights over digital businesses, the US could both get the removal of DSTs, DSTs being digital services taxes, certainty for their businesses and the introduction of minimum tax rules more broadly, potentially reducing the kind of competitive issues that some of their businesses were perceived to be facing as a result of the introduction of US specific minimum tax rules. Marcus, anything to add there? Well, focusing on the pillar two side of things, there are different countries that were looking to get different things out of it and perceive different problems that Pillar 2 is intended to address. But you can broadly put countries into two camps. The first camp viewed Pillar 2 as about stopping a perceived race to the bottom in corporate income tax rates. 
race to the bottom refers to the perceived behavior of a jurisdiction to lower its corporate income tax rate to attract investment from multinationals in their jurisdiction at the disadvantage of other higher tax jurisdictions. And so there was a view amongst a relatively large block of countries that Pillar 2 is principally about establishing a floor and stopping this race to the bottom in corporate income tax rates. Other jurisdictions, that other camp I mentioned, didn't think Pillar 2 was about that at all. They viewed it more as about remaining BEPS challenges. And this goes back to the first BEPS project. And while there was some incremental improvements to substance rules and the transfer pricing requirements to ensure that substance was generally aligned with profit allocation, there was still a perception amongst the second group of countries that that just didn't go far enough, that substance rules and other transfer pricing items that were addressed in the first BEPS project still allowed for some degree of perceived profit shifting. And so Pillar 2 was viewed as a mechanism to shore that up and to address these remaining BEPS challenges. So as you can see, like Pillar 1, you have different perspectives on what the Pillar 2 rules were intended to address. Could you each give me a high-level summary of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2? Alistair, I'll start with you with Pillar 1. Pillar 1's got three main things that I would focus on. One is the reallocation of additional tax and rights to market jurisdictions, which is focused on digital businesses, again, at least from a European perspective, but it's not limited to digital businesses and applied more broadly to large, very profitable multinationals. This reallocation is what the draft refers to as amount A. You've got amount B, which is a fixed return for certain baseline marketing and distribution activities. And that's about the simplification of transfer pricing rules. It's about making the rules work better as they already exist. Then you've got the removal of digital services taxes, which is an important component of the deal and is an attempt to really package together something that works for different countries and that works for the U.S. And Marcus, do you want to talk to us a little bit about Pillar 2? So Pillar 2 is more straightforward than Pillar 1 in terms of what it's trying to achieve. It essentially establishes a minimum rate of tax. It's designed to ensure that every large internationally operating business pays at least a 15% rate of tax in every jurisdiction that it operates in. And importantly, that is an effective tax rate computation. So the statutory rate is not what we're looking at. We're looking at the statutory rate less incentives and credits and other preferences that the multinational takes in the jurisdiction. And importantly, unlike Pillar 1, where it is very limited in its scope in terms of the number of companies that it applies to, Pillar 2 applies to, to any company with at least 750 million euros of revenue. So it applies to a much broader swath of multinationals. Pillar 2 is essentially intended to reduce that race to the bottom type behavior, if that's in fact what's happening. Is that right? So the United States Treasury Secretary, when she refers to Pillar 2, describes it as a mechanism to stop the race to the bottom in corporate income tax rates. So that is the policy intent of Pillar 2 from some countries, particularly those countries with higher corporate income tax rates. So Alistair, coming back to you on Pillar 1, something that I've heard and would be interested to get your thoughts on is one of the perceptions of Pillar 1 is that for so long we think about the permanent establishment rules and where IP sits and where it should be taxed. But it seems like there's a shift to maybe taxing where 
the consumers are a little bit more. And that's kind of associated with some aspects of Pillar 1. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think many countries, when they looked at the concerns they had about the taxation of the digital economy, they saw that the way that businesses operated has changed and that it used to be that to have a significant presence in a jurisdiction meant having boots on the ground. And that's simply no longer the case. The way that digital businesses work, they can be really heavily involved in an economy and generate significant revenues and significant profits from a jurisdiction but without being there. And the way that the corporate income tax system works, as you said, it requires you to have a physical presence or a subsidiary or an entity in a jurisdiction to give a jurisdiction taxing rights over that group. And what Pillar 1 is looking to do is to change that. And it's looking to say, well, actually, are there situations when a jurisdiction should have taxing rights over a multinational simply because that multinational generates significant revenue from that jurisdiction? And it's then looking to plug that new approach to allocating taxing rights into the existing system that is kind of entity based and that looks to substance and having physical presence in jurisdictions and integrating those two together. Pillar one, pillar two, <laughs> these are the columns on a house that is much bigger than transfer pricing, <laughs> but obvious that these have massive impacts on transfer pricing. So would you speak to some of the considerations from a transfer pricing perspective that pillar one presents? I think it's important to emphasize that pillar one is not the death of transfer pricing, it's not <laughs> the replacement of transfer pricing with something else. It's an attempt to build on transfer pricing and it's putting on this new reallocation of taxing rights for certain multinationals in certain circumstances, but it still requires you to do transfer pricing first. And so if anything, it makes transfer pricing more important because if money is moving around in the transfer pricing world, that creates more difficulties when you apply pillar one on top of that. I think the other thing is there are always going to be disputes about countries taxing rights over multinationals and countries are always going to want more. And so for people that work in transfer pricing when fundamentally what you're doing is to determine where a multinational pays tax. That's always a question that countries are going to keep asking and they're going to keep asking in a way that is, is difficult for taxpayers. So the, the Parthenon of transfer pricing isn't crumbling. The pillars are still <laughs> keeping us up, right? The pillars are trying to support a house that is in danger of falling down. It's trying to restabilize <laughs> the system that is increasingly difficult for taxpayers to manage. That's great. And Marcus, in Pillar 2, are there any transfer pricing considerations we should be aware of or be thinking about? Yeah, I think Pillar 2 is more of an indirect effect on transfer pricing. And the reason I say that is that it doesn't result in any direct changes to the transfer pricing rules. What it will do is it will establish this minimum rate of tax in every jurisdiction. And so I think there will be some companies that, assuming this regime comes into force, will look at restructuring themselves or realigning their business in light of this new baseline. And so that will bring with it all sorts of transfer pricing considerations around potentially the movement of activities from one jurisdiction to another. In other words, if there is no longer the ability to receive tax incentives below this 15% rate, then I think some companies, depending on their profile, may consider relocating those activities in a different jurisdiction where they perhaps more naturally aligned with the business and the existing value chain of the company. And so that will bring with it all sorts of transfer pricing considerations around the movement of activities and any assets, including intangibles, related to that. It seems to me like the setting of that baseline set at 15%, had it been much higher or lower that could have had a larger impact on the potential restructuring that might ensue as a result. Would you say that's true? 
Well, yeah, I think the 15% was a heavily negotiated parameter. It was initially revolving more around 12.5% was where it was with the new U.S. administration came into these negotiations. They pushed for a slightly higher rate in their view to more effectively address this perceived race to the bottom in corporate income tax rates. And so it was ultimately agreed at 15%. But yes, if that would have been agreed at 20%, then there would be even more dramatic effects. So with all of this in mind, what should taxpayers and companies be focused on going forward? So I think for taxpayers, one of the big questions is, is Pillar 1 going to happen? Is the U.S. Congress going to implement a deal that includes Pillar 1 or ratify Pillar 1? I think it's quite difficult to perceive that if the U.S. doesn't sign up, that other countries would be interested in pursuing Pillar 1. The involvement of the U.S. is so important. But that's not quite where we are at this stage. At this stage, the OECD is still in the process of developing the rules. And so I think that's very much what taxpayers should be focused on. Are those rules right? How can those rules be improved? Recognising that whatever happens in future, and it is very difficult to anticipate, this is something that countries may well look to, irrespective of whether or not there is a finding multilateral deal that includes the U.S. The discussions that are happening at the OECD on Pillar 1 are changing the way that tax administrations are thinking about transfer pricing. And so I think that's the thing that I would be focused on as a business is actually what are the impacts of those discussions on the way that I'm seeing tax administrations interact with me. So, Marcus, what should taxpayers and companies be focused on going forward? So with respect to Pillar 2, I think what companies are focused on right now is recognizing there still is some uncertainty about the timeline and the overall course of implementation. What most companies are focused on is doing modeling for key jurisdictions, so material jurisdictions where they have operations, and going through the Pillar 2 calculations there to get a sense of what the Pillar 2 effective tax rate is to determine if there's any material top-up tax and what the impact is on cash tax and ETR. The other big focus for companies is in going through that modeling exercise. It allows you to stress test your financial accounting systems to see if you have any data gaps relative to what Pillar 2 requires. And so that's another key focus is determining is the financial accounting systems equipped to produce the information that Pillar 2 requires from a compliance and administration standpoint. So I think those, Brittany, are the two things companies are focused on right now is focus modeling to determine what the cash tax and ETR impact of Pillar 2 could be to be able to communicate with management, but then also doing that modeling to get a sense of where the financial accounting system stand in terms of being able to comply with this regime should it be implemented. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today and look forward to speaking with you more about this in the future. Thank you. Thanks.